Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, you are doing a terrific job against defending against total disorder. That's uh, I, one of my uh, possible first sentences of my memory and alertness book. And uh, I thought that would be cheering and encouraging to start with. But uh, but I am trying to feel cheering and encouraging. Uh, but I have to say it's been it, th there's some weird vibes, you know, this extended heat wave, a strange summer. Uh, I don't know. I feel very good, extremely on the local creative front, but the moment my mind sort of moves, you know, out, I start to think, oh, it's time to turn around, come, mm -hmm. come back, come back. Mm -hmm. So yeah. how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I agree with you. I feel that people are not okay. I <clears throat> am starting the first day of classes with students tomorrow, and I'm extremely ready. I, uh, I think my my mentor teacher and the teachers around me were surprised by how uh, how organized I am and how many contingency plans I have for the class. Um, I pa I've packed the first week every single day with enough stuff to potentially fill three to four hours instead of forty five minutes because I don't want there to be any downtime. Mm -hmm. My thought process, and I can't remember if it was you or Brian Allen Carr who told me this, but the idea is just never have downtime, always have something to do. And I took that to heart. <clears throat> so pretty much throughout my, my first year, uh, my goal is to have every single day structured like that. Now, the stuff that I have scheduled, the assignments, the uh, the bell work, the brain teasers, the stuff that is less important on the totem pole. Obviously, if it gets pushed back, it's stuff that won't necessarily be missed, but it exists in case it needs to. So I'm very confident about tomorrow. I've met a lot of the students and their parents um, during open house on Monday night and uh, nice people, a lot of military families. Um, quiet kids as most kids who are dragged by their parents out to an open house in junior year are um mm -hmm. a lot of uh yeah i'll have reports back on the zoomers i'm sure you will. <laughs> i'm sure you will i think that what you've got is a great plan i think that the the way to 45 minutes is a tough amount of time it's uh, you've got to be very sharp and keep uh, the wheels turning and also do what you do so well with this show of sheepdogging things that get held over and, and to not let things entirely slip through the cracks, which is very hard to do. The more dynamic often, uh, you know, each session is and you get your standards get higher and higher because you get, you know, the energy hit back of when things are really firing. You want it all on that level. Uh, then it is easy for things to sometimes really important things to slip through. So just, you know, always keep your uh, a notebook so you can quickly jot something down. And when you do have not downtime, but if they're writing in class or working in mm -hmm. partnerships or, or team activities, and you need all of those activities, single partner team, 
take that time for a little just quick prep about something, you know, just little notes, mm -hmm. maybe something that will come back up. And if you can, at the end, before you totally debrief at the end of the day, try to really uh, journal that in. And, and if you can stage manage those things that maybe don't get the full attention, but pop up and then remember, you know, because oftentimes mm -hmm. students will remember something if they suggested it. And then if it, if it disappears, a lot of the times they won't pick it up, but it's always cool to be able to. And, and you can do that. So it's a real it's a great alertness exercise. You're going to have a lot of fun. I envy your students. I uh, well, thank you. I have a, a fun anecdote that will go into our conversation after we get our uh, first our initial our bell work, if you will, out of the way. Okay. I was in my classroom preparing. This was after open house. A Chinese exchange student came in and he introduced himself, shook my hand. And I was telling him about the class and what to expect. And I said, you know, there's going to be a lot of writing and a lot of reading. So do you like to read? Do you like to write? And he said, to be honest with you, sir, not really. And then he paused. He said, but I will do everything I can to succeed in your class. I said, okay, let's go. There we go. There we go. <laughs> there we go. Well, you know, I mean, I think that one of the, the great myths about people uh, like you and me, if I could suggest this, is that we are uh, overly geared to the exceptional students, the very bright students. I, I, I just absolutely dismiss that. I don't think that's mm -hmm. true. I think that um, that might have been a little bit more true of me when I first, you know, got teaching pretty regularly, but I don't think so. And I, I think that that a sense of method and the confidence of having method works for everyone. And I think that is one of the major failings with teachers who are too lenient to trying to be, you know, that emotional sensitivity rather than mm -hmm. putting forward the standards. That young man's response, I think, was terrific. I mean, who knows what, you know, how he'll perform, but give people the chance to perform to standard. Don't relax standards around people. I mean, who wants that at any stage in life, really? The mm -hmm. only people who want that are adult administrators. You know, no good teacher and no student with any heart ever wants that. So stick exactly. to that program. And I think that um, they will all help each other along. Remember, they're all co-teachers, you know, right. you be the captain, right. be the captain with the bullwhip and the whistle. Mm -hmm. But everybody is also a teacher, you know, and they have a responsibility that way. And I think that the. uh I, I do approve of the term peer to peer. You know, mm -hmm. I, I don't like teacherly lingo often, but I think peer to peer learning is very important. Well, to yeah. use teacher lingo in uh, over the next year, I'm looking forward to discussing pedagogy. Oh no! <laughs> no! Well, as, as, as you've heard from me, I, I do occasionally let that idea creep out, but I'm, I'm very glad that you're treating it uh, a little bit like kerosene on an open wound. You know, if it really is necessary, yeah, you use it, but it's not really optimal if you can avoid it. 
Absolutely. Do you have a video game or band for us? <laughs> Uh, no, I well, I did go video game again, and I'm I'm saving up some really good band stuff for when we hit the fall. But I thought I would do that. This is uh, you'll recognize sort of the literary background on this, but I I think it's kind of um, I don't know. It's called Apparent Odyssey, and the art direction background is set ten years in the future. America is now a mess of giant tent cities or sprawling squatter communes in miles of abandoned freight trains across the heartland. There are, however, enclaves of reason, oasis sanctuaries that you can reach. You are on the run with a special needs child whose problems you've yet to determine. So it's a learn-as-you-flee experience deal, sometimes awkward, to say the least. You are being pursued and pitted against a range of adversaries within the game. One, the wokesters, who can take a variety of forms, including evil living Barbies and hideously bedraggled trash and treasure mermaids, amongst many others. Secondly, the government, or rather forces, various forces claiming to be the remains of the government, including some mutant forms like seemingly female nurses from the 1950s in crisp, white, reassuring uniforms, but with the frightening heads of crows. Thirdly, there are the marketers, most of whom no longer have anything to sell you. They simply want to absorb or digest you and the child like oversized, predatory, soft-shell mollusks that secrete a corrosive solvent. You have to learn about the child's special needs and special capabilities to elude capture and find an enclave of reason. So that's kind of... Uh, you know, it's Cormac McCarthy, The Road. It's a whole bunch of scenarios, but... I do like the fact that you don't really know the child. So you're having to do some, uh, and the name apparent is a parent, you know, apparent, not but it's mm -hmm. a play on a parent, of course. So you're having to do some pickup parenting, not knowing if this is your child or not. It doesn't matter. It's your responsibility. It's your magical totem. But you're pursued and sabotaged by some strange mutant forms. So I like it. I like it. It reminds me of a more cerebral, surreal, and heady version of the blockbuster big budget video game, The Last of Us, which was turned into a television show, which circled around a zombie apocalypse, <clears throat> ostensibly, although most of your enemies within the game are other humans who've gone feral. And you are tasked with uh, shepherding a young girl through this landscape. Although she does not have special okay. needs, she is indeed special because she has been bitten by a zombie and not turned. So she has, she's kind of the, the cure. She's a walking cure. 
Um, what I like about a parent odyssey is I'm, I'm dreaming up the different puzzles you would have to come up with to number one, discover the child's special needs. Mm-hmm. And then the action puzzles you could get what kind of a run and gun uh, while utilizing your your little partner there to to help you like what is he what is he particularly good at what if he's what if one of his special powers let's go full mutant is the ability to uh mind control right so you're being pursued and perhaps he can do mind control and have one of the wokesters turn their machine pistol on their fellow uh, colleagues but every time he does it his woke meter goes up a little bit so you have to make sure that he's not getting too right poisoned right. with it so there's right. a, a lot a lot of cool game mechanics you could add into that and and i think as you point out really good story mechanics i i was seeing this as the mm-hmm. kind of thing that a good storyteller uh someone you know like you, you like you would really enjoy working with game technicians software people yeah. you know people really working with the mechanics of the game uh to really keep the narrative dramatic mm-hmm. i think that's the key because all of the all of the revelations particularly about the child would require really intense scenes conflicts challenges particular moments and i think mm-hmm. that really is a good storytelling challenge uh that that would maybe move this a little bit past just the the gaming level but as always i like this because you it's this is we said last episode is a way of me learning more about games from you because i'm floating out ideas that certainly have been you know trotted out before in Mm -hmm. certain forms and it, it just kind of i don't know that's the way i would like to learn about that sort of thing you know mm-hmm, good mm-hmm. teaching as though you're right as though you're building it from scratch and then somebody can say hey i, I recognize that do you have uh an aphorism i do i do whoever the lost first peoples were and wherever they began their strange journeys their ghosts are still our ghosts we are literally insane to believe otherwise. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a very, um, that's easily forgotten. You know, it, if we go back in time, you know, even 2000 years, people had a whole different sense of collective memory, a whole different sense of the people before. Mythologically, perhaps not. But we never seem to get away from a certain degree of ghost lost first missed people and i think that is a little bit of an introduction to a broader principle i'm putting forward which i call the conservation of mystery so um that's my aphorism you know love it glad you like it it. right up my alley right up my alley i tend to think that this conversation that we're having right now has been had before multiple times over the six million years of human existence by the way my son was watching brain candy tv which is one of the shows he's allowed to watch because it's educational and they're doing a bit on dinosaurs and in order to display how long ago the dinosaurs lived they represent the human lifespan as the width of one sheet of paper and then they have a bar that reaches up as high as the statue of liberty and that's 65 million years ago now 
in order to represent what they call the time of humans, they make a stack of paper 5,000 years high. And I said, wait a minute, human beings are not 5,000 years old, not even close. And this is not a, a Christian show. This is not a creationist. You know, we the earth was created 6,000 years ago. Human beings are between five and six million years old, uh, which is one of the really kind of fascinating ideas once you think about it, which is that uh, that's a long, long, long time. That's a lot of time for things to decompose and for us to live among ruins and to be visited and all kinds of cool shit like that. But uh, And also that's really pretty speculative and, and strangely mosaic and not a yeah. consensus sort of idea. So, I mean, I think one of the, um, it's another, it's a paradox that I've been thinking of that is kind of uh, related to uh, the Fermi paradox of, you know, why, if there's such a great probability of mm -hmm. extraterrestrial life, why haven't we been visited? Why isn't there more substantial proof? And my question is, why don't we know more really about the human story. I mean, it's really, really strange what we don't know. And it's starting to, I think, come into more focus with particularly human dispersal around the globe. There's very, very little coherence there. So it's mm -hmm. just all a messy mystery. Which, which, uh, which I'm super into. Yeah, yeah messy yeah. mysteries are where it's all at, man. That's exactly right. All right. So um, for my my ic for the day my imaginative okay challenge. okay well look you have had um a bit of storytelling fun you have had a range of of you know i think uh well more entertainment driven uh challenges so i thought with teaching coming up i would lay on you uh, a philosophical question which I've actually uh, had my students, um, I admit some of my better students usually, but they, they oftentimes really enjoy this, this question. Okay. And it gives you a lot of different room to move. The only assignment really here is, is to be decisive in, in a direction that you choose and to try to work through it thoroughly. But it's phrased as a question. Does every musical instrument somehow contain within itself all the potential sounds it can make or be made to make? And you're free to extend that beyond. I mean, I think to some extent I use that as a kind of distraction device to see if students will only focus on uh, the example of a musical instrument and not see the larger, you know, rippling implications. But mm -hmm. is that clear as a starting point of what, what you're to do with that? Absolutely. I thought that would be a good brain sharpener. Yeah, I like it. I'm going to work on that in the background while we talk about... Well, we had a nice uh, lighter episode earlier, and this one's not going to quite reach the uh, the depths of uh, the episode that came before that one. But uh, where is it? Why is it not pulling up here in my email? Here it is. All right. So 
you sent me an email for this one. It was a bit long for a text. And I'm going to begin reading it as I do. And we can stop whenever we like and, and talk. I know I'm going to have things to say, and I know you will too. Here we go. If the first photo of the Earth from space is the most important image ever, quote, taken, a close second, and one that's often superimposed over it, is the first atomic detonation. Right now, we, ha we have a biopic of Oppenheimer competing in movie theaters with Barbie's bubblegum war on the patriarchy. Back in the real world, China and Russia just conducted joint naval maneuvers off Alaska. Meanwhile, the stories America is obsessing on have to do with the, quote, culture wars, as if we have any culture to fight over, which to a very great extent now resolve simply to transgenderism. That's become the number one headline draw, according to my media analytics, by a long shot. But you can throw in Barbie and BLM. But you can throw in Barbie and BLM. Interesting kerfluffle at UNLV about a Black student who didn't attend a single class last spring and died. I'm not laughing at that, but got a B in the course. Kind of hard to explain that, except that everyone understands. So first of all, we'll stop there. That's the end of the first paragraph. First of all, um, I mentioned this to you off mic, and I wanted to express it on the show. Uh, you, you've known me for a long time. You know I have a great sense of humor. You know I have a very dark sense of humor. Not very much offends me uh, in terms of racial humor, gender-related humor, sexuality-related. Like, I think it's all funny. I love to laugh at stuff. But when Barbie and Oppenheimer opened opposite each other, uh, there were a lot of memes that went super viral uh, about Barbenheimer. And it was the combination of these two movies. So the conceit of the meme is that it's funny to mix, as you put it, Barbie's bubblegum war against the patriarchy with the very dark story of Oppenheimer. And uh, I remember when I first saw those memes, it felt to me like something that a screenwriter would have come up with to show how callous people had actually become. Mm -hmm. um, something that you would see in a satire, but it was real. And I, I saw a lot of articles about, you know, of course, the people of Japan who uh, just this week were uh, commemorating the 78th anniversary of the nuclear bomb being detonated in Hiroshima, which interestingly enough had to, their commemorations had to be moved inside due to a typhoon. Um, they did not take kindly to it. And they started making memes of 9-11, but with the Twin Towers smoke being pink and the numbers 9-11 being in the Barbie font, right? Which people then were like, well, that's funny too. Chris, I don't know if I'm getting grumpy and old and losing my sense of humor, but this <laughs> felt like it was in very, the whole thing felt like it was in very poor taste to me uh, because what I, what this made me realize about myself as somebody who, when tensions with Russia uh, over the Ukraine debacle were getting to a fever pitch, I had moments where I was walking my son and I was I would hear, you know, fighter jets going overhead in formation, and I would have apocalyptic nightmare visions as I was walking him. And as I was walking him, I was making a plan for, you know, well, what if, what if I get the text on my phone, like those people in Hawaii got about five or six 
maybe seven years ago. Uh, do you remember this when they got the accidental tech uh, text that yeah. nukes were incoming? Um, so what if I get that text on my phone? What do I do? I kiss my son goodbye. I, you know, try to think happy thoughts and give him a hug and watch the mushroom cloud hit, right? Very disturbing. I take nuclear war very seriously, which is a funny thing to have to even say, because you would think most people would, but I don't think people do. And you go into this a little bit more uh, as to why that might be. But I don't know. What do you think about Barbenheimer? Am I am I overreacting? What do you think? Well, not in my view, um, because I, I think there is uh, a trend all on its own which has been active for some time, you could say it is just sort of uh, bread and circuses, brutality, trivialized, just bad taste becoming uh, so not even normalized, but celebrated. And I think social media has allowed that to really, really just uh, go super viral. And Mm -hmm. It's disgusting, oftentimes just in its own right, or just disappointing and disheartening. Just it just seems like mm-hmm. uh, it reminds me of uh, there was a show that um, started. It was an anthology of all the strange television from around the world, and they mm-hmm. really enjoyed the Japanese programs, some of which were genuinely hilarious. And some of them were just very, you know, really quite obscure. Uh, but I remember there was a, a show which didn't last long in Spain about uh, there was it was done on live stage, live set. But there were three toilet stalls and people were charged with going into the stalls to defecate. And then the results <laughs> were judged but, you know, it was really <laughs> just blatantly how low can we go? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the commentator really sort of expressed my view of just, well, I'm not even going to get grossed out by this. I'm just going to just say, look, that is, uh, and it's not even a question of it being juvenile or pure, you know, or just obscene it's just sad you know and i think some of that is the way i felt about the memes that you're talking about but i do think there is something disturbing about it in this trivialized uh goldfish minded cultural amnesia sense that we've talked about at several different points in the show and that to me is what i see because i don't think there are a lot of people who take nuclear war seriously i really don't i think that has slipped off the deep uh central nervous system radar you know the distant early warning inside us all and when i posted about the anniversary of the bomb dropping on august 6th which is still i think a hugely mysterious moment in american history from a conspiracy point of view as william burroughs said who really gave that order you know was it truman really but there there were people on my side 10 years younger 10 years older and a lot of people in my age by and they really got that groove it's something that really resonates and i think it's actually a good thing that it resonates with you i think that has a little bit to do with 
the military background and being around people who have, uh, you know, you said your students, you know, are connected with the military through their parents. I worry about people who are disconnected from this because it really is all over the globe. It's right up the, the street for me, so to speak, the nuclear test site, you know, Area 51. These things are very, very real. I spent time out in Micronesia where the hydrogen bombs were tested and the damage, you know, is still very apparent. It's certainly culturally apparent. So I can't, and I can't imagine that we've gotten past all of the popular entertainments of apocalypse and the sound of the sirens, you know, I mean, I think it's like uh, the older generation, uh, some of some older British people that I met a long time ago, their sense of air raid sirens, you know, and the bombing mm -hmm. of London. I mean, there was nothing funny about that, you know, and it was really um, part of a deep Jungian anxiety verging on nightmare state of mind. And I, I can't imagine why we would have anything less than a lot of respect for that today, rather than denigrating those feelings. So I think you're, you're right in line. And, but there is something very disturbing about this uh, collision of a, of a, you know, this iconic doll with a whole lot of weird connections and the atomic nuclear age. And in my book, Eat Jelly Deals and Think Distant Thoughts, there's an explosion of toys and games and baubles over both Japan and America. You know, we're still recovering from the aftershocks, all this sort of merchandise and all these little gadgets and gimmicks and things that kind of are there to distract us from the dark horror. And isn't it the case that in these apocalyptic movies, there's oftentimes a moment where the protagonists or, or the, the whoever we're, we're following, they're picking their way through the rubble and they come upon, I don't know, a Bart Simpson doll or something that mm -hmm, is the, mm -hmm. the emblem, an emblematic uh, version of, of this lost life. And I think it raises conflicted feelings whenever I see those scenes because I think, well, God, that's that's the way it might go. And that's how trivialized the whole thing was. And so maybe maybe the rubble's a good thing, you know? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But I certainly don't think that that you were missing uh, a note or being overly sensitive to some strange quiver in, you know, the uh, the cultural spasm. Right. Your connection between the explosion of the bomb and the explosion of toys and culture uh, that came from both America and Japan. So it's interesting in your story that you have the bombs going off over the U.S. and Japan um, is really interesting. I wonder if the the resurrection of Barbie in the form of this multi this hugely successful multi-million dollar Hollywood movie. I think what freaks me out the most about it is that, is it a, is it an omen? Is the Barbie movie an omen? I mean, I went to go watch it <clears throat> with Rios and it had its, uh, it had its moments on a purely 
uh, filmic level. I have critiques of it. I think Ryan Gosling was really incorrectly cast as the Ken doll just because he seems too intelligent of a person to really play the airhead convincingly. Um, a lot of the humor fell flat to me as well. But there's a um, outside of any connection to the Oppenheimer movie. There's a bit of a creepy undercurrent to the Barbie movie that I don't I haven't seen anybody talk about. And it's not it's not Lynchian. I wouldn't use that word, although it does attempt to do uh, it tries its hand at Lynchianism. Doesn't quite. Yes, it does. Uh, did you see it? Yeah. Oh, you did. Okay, great. So we're we're talking this. So you, yeah, you might no, get I'm what I'm talking page. about. I'm There's on the same a, page so far. There is a a sinister joylessness to the movie that nice. I found really disturbing. What do you well think of said. that? Well mm -hmm. said. I think that is, is certainly a fair comment. Absolutely, I do. I think that that is uh, something I haven't heard mentioned in any of the reviews. I think people get very distracted by uh, the the color and the uh, the mood, or uh, they get all upset about you know the the patriarchy issues and <laughs> anti male. They take it way too seriously. Joe Rogan said it's a doll movie, but I think what you're getting to is is exactly my take. And I I use the expression eidolons, e i d o l o n s. It's not I didn't invent that term, but I. That's uh, something I really emphasized in Zanesville, and I it still keeps I still find uses for it. But it, I mean by that all of the caricatures, replications, representations of humans in doll form or cartoon form or emoji form, and how mannequins, mannequins, you know, that's kind of what we're just surrounded by these representations of humanity, which is very weird, which gets into then in robotics terms, the uncanny valley idea, you know, how much they represent humanity, how realistic they are. But I think it is just so very creepy. And you look on a scale since World War II, how these eidolons have grown in population. And it's just astounding it's astounding. I am including some uh, anthropomorphic animals like, you know, the Geico Gecko, you know, because he talks, mm -hmm. you know, he's got a character. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, he's got a Cockney accent, for God's sake. Um, why we have all of these things, I mean, that's just demented. And this, to go back to our, one of our very early themes and our ongoing touch stones of what would sort of remote indigenous people think about this well the new guineans for instance have a great deal to say about it and mm -hmm. they're freaked out they really just can't imagine i mean if if photography is haunted and we've i think made a good case that it is and it's a reflection of the inherent hauntedness of the modern mind I don't see any way around all of these dolls, all of these toys, all of these representations 
of strange character. And now we have perhaps the most iconic doll of all becoming one of the most successful films of all time, right in this summer of, of heat wave and flood and strangeness and up against a movie that is about really the father of the potential for humans to destroy civilization. There is no way a New Guinean with one foot in the magic world, one foot in the educated Western cargo West world would go, that's not, that's not significant. What does it take to get your guys' attention? Yeah. 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 Yeah, Absolutely. It's a spiritual, magical sorcery extravaganza. Absolutely. I felt walking into the film in 108 degree heat um, with Rios and I both, both dressed really nice. We went to Oklahoma's knockoff version of the Alamo draft house. I'm sure you've been to an Alamo before they serve food and beer and all this kind of stuff. So we had popcorn Rios had a cocktail and it was a date. It was nice, but it was hot as hell outside. And I sort of stumbled. I had purchased my tickets online and we walked in and we found out we had one minute until the doors closed. And so I'm looking around where to get my tickets and we just see the sea of people moving into the theater. So we just joined them. Didn't have to show anybody <laughs> the ticket that I bought. I just walked right in. Um, and we watched the movie. We're watching the movie. All the humor is falling flat. Will Ferrell is flailing around trying to trying to get blood from a stone, trying to make some kind of joke that works and nothing's working. And then I start, I felt queasy towards the end of the film when the Kens are warring with each other and it's in slow motion and it's supposed to bring to mind maybe 300, the movie about the 300 Spartans who who fought off Xerxes and all that. And then I get home and I'm reading about the film and I find out that test audiences vetoed a scene that's in the movie uh, that the director was Greta Gerwig was really sad that they had to take out because it was a it was a fart symphony. It was a musical number made up entirely of people farting. And I thought to myself, the this is a person who has no idea what funny is. It is this person is a vessel to deliver a message, a spiritual message that I think you're accurately stating isn't one that's on the surface. It doesn't have anything to do with, with patriarchy or transgenderism or any of the, that's all there to get butts in seats. That's there to make Ben Shapiro mad and make liberals buy tickets to own him. That, that doesn't, (laughs) Barbie feels like you said, like a, like bad magic. There's something spooky about the movie going on, which is not to say it doesn't have its moments. There were parts that I thought were effective. I thought that the uh, um, the, the mother-daughter stuff, I'm susceptible to that. Anything with parents who have children who are of teenage age who are rebelling against their parents and hate everything about their parents affects me in the same way that the the raw meat bait of having a transgender Barbie or having Barbie hate the patriarchy has for 
those people, right? Like that bait got me. But all that aside, it feels like tonally, and I haven't seen Oppenheimer, tonally Barbie already feels like Oppenheimer <laughs> to, to me. It just feels like a like it's that kind of mood where I don't know, where a bunch of robots or AI said to each other, we are supposed to be fun. This is supposed to be a lighthearted, fun satire. So we are going to include humor. It just none of it, none of it worked. Well, I don't think you can get around the fact that this summer has seen the mention of AI skyrocket in the media. My media analytics demonstrate it's just a year ago at this time. You know, AI was AI has been around, depending on your definition. I mean, it's been around for quite some time. It's certainly part of, of popular entertainment mythology, but it has just blown up over the summer so that's another part of the backdrop for these these two films another uh strange uh contrast conflict between them is i think that barbie is one of those is is definitely a summer blockbuster meant for the multiplex theater you know it's meant for the night out just exactly the way you did it whereas oppenheimer i think is really a for 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 nolan uh is strangely quiet, very dialogue driven. And a lot of people, and I'm to some extent in the same boat, uh, really felt like they would really rather see it at home, you know, mm -hmm. that it was not needing, uh, or or what it really needed was intimacy, not, you know. Mm -hmm. um, so there was a bunch of strange stuff there. But I think we're onto something really important when we say just basically that Barbie is an occult movie in our terms of that. If people want to go off on some other definition of what occult means, they can use their, we've prosecuted that word over 160 plus episodes, and we bring a special definition to it. And I think that you're absolutely right about that level of a kind of sinister humorlessness within the bubblegum bright big frame story that that is strange tonally and i don't think that uh two people who i i do pay attention and i know you do too bill maher was really quite openly panned it he really he was concerned about the patriarch and he was concerned about but he did say, well, you know, it's just a big popular entertainment. Joe Rogan completely went down that path. It's just a, it's just a doll movie. It's just, you know, no big deal. Well, I think anything that rakes in a billion dollars is a big deal. You know, uh, I, I, I don't I, I really think that that we're on the right path to say that there is a very peculiar message in that. Emerging as it does now, because mm -hmm. we're you know, this is another thing that really deeply annoys me about people who pretend to be intelligent they always want to, to just insist on the entertainment the product the message on its own and i don't think that smart people think that i think they always think about context and timing there there isn't you know we're we're talking about now we're talking about this summer we're talking about a particular delivery mechanism 
I think all of those things work together. And the fact that there were these memes, as you started us off with, that brought these two films as if we needed to, like one film wasn't enough because, well, we're, we're trying to get people back into theaters because of COVID, you know, and it's really hot and it's expensive, you know. So there's a lot of backfilling going on here, you know. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Are we trying to distract people? give them entertainment. I mean, that's what they would have done in the 1930s. You know, we would have had King Kong. We would have had, you know, uh, The Wizard of Oz. We wouldn't necessarily, is that what these films are doing? I'm not sure. I mean, Oppenheimer is certainly a much more serious endeavor. Is that what, is that the adult alternative to Barbie? Barbie's just fun and open to everyone, and you don't really have to think about anything. And or if you do think about everything, it just is a nice uh, rhetorically freighted message that is going to win over uh, the female demographic. How many women are going? No, look, that was a really stupid movie. You know, I really <laughs> don't. I, you know, it, it mm-hmm. becomes. And the Nagenian view is, look, that's not popular entertainment that's religion Mm. you just don't know how to see your own religions anymore Mm. and i think that's my position i think that we're so confused about those categories of what defines religion uh i mean i've never heard more religious orthodox people than the ones who claim to be completely outside of religion it's like hey man you know, really? So I think there's something really in there. Um, but it obviously, uh, well, I, I don't know. It, it was fun enough and entertaining enough to make a billion dollars, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it was two hours and it wasn't torture. It wasn't torture. I'm not in the camp that, that it was, uh, that it was awful. It had its moments. I mean, Margot Robbie's nice to look at for two hours. Yes, I think so, that's the um, whole thing for me, frankly. Yeah. It, it, the casting. And I, I, you know, imagine how careful that was. And she did have some real input into this, into the script as well, apparently. That's what hmm. my aunt Lisa says and a few other people I've heard about that, that she was a, I think she's a co-producer, you know, so. Is she? Okay. I think yeah, there was I, involvement in that. But. Uh, underlying it all though i think when august 6th came around i i really felt a kind of sickening sense of disconnection uh from the real reality and incidentally the 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 japanese ceremony for people who if they can access it it's really worth checking out the mayor uh, and his, because it's his city, you know, uh, Hiroshima or Hiroshima, and a very, very, talk about tastefulness and heart and dignity, and I think hitting the right notes. I was very moved. I was very moved by that. I thought he put that whole thing right back into position. And I don't know, it, it it's a mystery to me why we can't talk more fully about the influence of that kind of weaponry 
And yet I was very, very moved by when I posted just some simple photography uh, that there was a real rush of response, but from mature age people, you know, not from younger people at all, you know? Right, um, right, right. Well, that leads to what you've written here. Uh, the idea of war. Here's where it gets juicy. The idea of war with a capital W, mushroom cloud war, is unthinkable for most people, what we've been talking about. It's an absurd video game and blockbuster movie trope. Quote, when the world ends, the fun begins, end quote. First bullet point. This is under a section that Chris has titled My Argument. America bombed itself in 1945 and repeatedly in the decades to follow. I live near the nuclear test site. The signs mean what they say. This ripped a hole in the soul continuum and damaged the noosphere. Psychic aftershocks and mass contagions of insanity have resulted. Couldn't agree more. This is David Lynch's thesis. Here's what I want to get at. The quote, when the world ends, the fun begins. Can fun begin without some kind of destruction? Does one imply the other? This, in a way, relates to my imaginative challenge. Can you have one without the other? Does something have to be destroyed? Does something have to be sacrificed? Does there have to be a hangover? Do you have to uh, get into fights and, and cause craziness to have fun? That's what's really interesting to me about that. I, I would say absolutely not. I mean, I, I really don't think that's necessary in the sense that these post-apocalyptic games, books, movies, TV shows, on and on and on. I took that line from some new, you know, I think it's TV. I don't know, even know if it's a TV show or a video game or both, or maybe it's a video game that became a TV show or vice versa. Uh, I think that, It's easy to confuse a few things. You could say, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking some eggs. Well, that's not what's being talked about here. That's a wrong path. Do you need to destroy old forms, challenge norms in like a stand-up comedy sense to, to break new ground? Yeah, I'm a little bit more inclined in that way. But I think that underlying the whole uh, post-apocalyptic um, the first time I ever came across that really, I think, was a story by the rivers of Babylon, you know, uh, and then suddenly it was just every, the Twilight Zone, Planet of the Apes. Everything that I, you know, would grew up with was based on some sort of atomic destruction scenario. Well, we finally did it this time. And I think that the, the origin of that goes back to really an insight that... Uh, comes from the 19th century, which both Joseph Conrad and our own president, Theodore Roosevelt, just so beautifully laid down. And to some extent, Jack London, these really you know, vigorous, virile male exploration writers, they were concerned about the thin veneer of civilization. You know, that's a, that's a theme that runs. I mean, it's kind of you can see it in Lord of the Flies and, you know, on and on and on. But that's kind of an inner problem of, of humans, the, the human nature breaking out. 
But this, the thin veneer of civilization, I think, for smarter people gets much b- bigger in terms of not, well, if we don't have rule of law, people are going to get really nasty. It's that the whole mechanism of civilization in modern times is, is very false. You know, we have all these weird, we have financial markets that nobody understands that are all completely rigged games that are played like games. We have bizarre things like insurance, which is worth trillions of dollars and infects us all. And it's gambling. Everywhere we turn is really something that isn't tangibly real in a classic pre-civilization sense, pre-modernity sense. And I think earlier civilizations were a lot less artificial, you know, and if they tumbled, uh, well, I think that that we will too. But I think that we're tumbling because of our own levels of distraction, our own inability to see the strangeness, the insanity, the superficiality, the superfice, as we talked about in an earlier episode. That's a different sort of thing than, well, you have to destroy something to create something. No, that's a different thing. I think what we're saying with that is, all of that stuff was just bad, bad magic. And it may have brought forth a lot of good things. I mean, our conflicted problem is no one is willing to give up any convenience. We want to keep building our burgers. We want anesthesia. We want more and more luxury. We want to get fatter and fatter and then have somebody invent the weight loss pill that's going to remove any problems with exercise and on and on and on it goes. But in the background is a voice going, this is very, very strange magic, if not bad magic. I don't know if it is bad magic. I, 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 I think the bad magic is, is more recent, honestly. And a lot of people go, oh, no, that's, you know, we're much more humane now. You know, I, I didn't, I'm, I don't like, uh, that's not necessarily meaning we're putting forth good magic. You know, and I don't really buy that we're all that much more humane either. Um, I think something very, very twisted happened. And I think it started really with the bomb ripping a hole open in the spiritual continuum. I really, I don't think that's a metaphor. I'm really, I'm, I'm, I see that as a, a concrete truth. And I don't know how much more concrete could it be and visible, you know, that's my view. I just don't know how much more apparent anything could possibly be. I agree. Uh, You've said a few things that I really love. The first is that the difference between being humane and practicing good magic, that's very important. That goes to a concept that the Buddhists call idiot compassion, which a lot of people seem to have right now, which is the idea that doing what is nice and kind and gentle for everybody is what's best for them. That's not true. That is not true. And we are seeing what the problem is. The issue with the bomb. And the fact that it was able to rip open this soul continuum is because there is no equal and opposite force to oppose it. Nothing that matches its level of destruction on a level of regeneration or positivity. And perhaps the mental illness, which I would like to, uh, I would like to get your thoughts on 
why it has the particular flavor it has right now. Um, but that mental illness does seem to me to be, in a lot of ways, people's attempts to push back against that destruction and negativity with, quote, positivity. So smelled these two ideas. You have a bomb going off that is a massive rip in the soul continuum due to extreme destruction and negativity. Human beings being ensouled creatures recognize this and see that something has to be done in order to counterbalance this. What do we get? We get kindness. We get uh, be a fucking good person. We get all this niceness. The issue with it, of course, being that human beings are not nice or kind individuals. It's not for us to counterbalance that. And perhaps that is what's driving us crazy because not good magic does not necessarily mean being kind or being humane or being nice. What do you think about that? Well, I think it certainly does. And I think all of those, for starters, you have to believe that the the claim is equal to the delivery. And that's rarely the case. I mean, right. I think that most people would say someone who's overly, uh, well, someone who's loud about being kind probably isn't, you know? I mean, there's- Most there's, times, there's, no, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's nothing, nothing surer than that. Uh, I think that what what I find odd is that the underlying theme of our time and what connects all aspects of wokeness that I can see is victimhood. Uh, the claim of being oppressed. And we know philosophically where that comes from supposedly the Frankfurt School in a sense of sociological analysis of, of political and economic power. And then that metaphor just blowing up without any critique or analysis at all and being accepted and jargonized and then pounded down into a kind of mushy pablum that gets swallowed whole by people who don't know any better. Uh, the problem of having any agency, then, if you are the ultimate super victim, becomes comes up. But all of that is after the fact, the, the, the incredible sense of some hole in the human horizon of possibility being blasted open and nothing, as you said, taking its place in a positive, fertile creative, generative, healing, harmonic, any of those kinds of, of angles. And to some extent, to give some people in the 60s credit, I think they were trying. I think people like some of our heroes, like Terrence McKenna, John Lilly, yeah. I think they were seeing possibilities of, of new connections, new uh, marriages of art and technology and science and a humanist approach to psychology. And all of that has been completely lost, I think, short of basically uh, 
you and me and our listeners. I think that's how important yeah. <laughs> what we're doing is, honestly. And I really appreciate, as I know you do, uh, the people who are listening, because this is, is, mm-hmm. is special and it is embattled. And an awful lot of younger people just have no idea what even we're talking about at all. And yeah, I they would just dismiss it. Stunning. Yeah, they would dismiss it out of hand as uh, people sort of being mean. I read this great article by Freddie DeBoer. I want to uh, put a pin in this for now and come back to the rest of your notes next time because I think we've raised some interesting questions. But before I do that, I want to read this to you. Things InstaTherapy won't tell you. InstaTherapy, in this case, being therapy in scare quotes, popularized by Instagram and TikTok and things like that. This right. is from a Sirit, Sirit K. Chawla, who's really cool. She's got a lot of cool stuff. Number one, sometimes it is your fault. Number two, you might not love yourself completely. Three, Self-esteem comes from esteemable acts. Four, emotional regulation requires discipline. Five, some pain isn't healed. You just learn to live with it. Six, coddling is just as bad as neglect. Seven, narcissistic self-focus isn't healing. Eight, stop looking for a savior and be your own hero. So there are people out there fighting the good fight. There are, there are. And that's nicely crafted in in language that that I think Almost everyone can understand. It's got a good, reasonable pop psych feel to it. It isn't claiming to be on any other sort of level, and it needs to be at that level. And I think all of those have some some real uh, oomph to them and are part of, I mean, they would fit into our psychic defense program. You know, we're we're right on the case with that. Uh, You know, and it's it's part of an old, old program. You know, the builder is good if he or she builds what is good. You know, you want to be good? Well, okay, do some good, you know, and we've said that. And I think that's really, uh, is really important. And there is no escape from certain pains and failings. There is just living with it. And that's one of the secrets of the past, you know, that we've got to relearn if we're going to survive. I I agree. I agree. So I've been thinking about your philosophical question. And I have an answer. Good. Might not be a satisfying answer, but it is uh, several paragraphs and lines long. So I'm doing my very best, doing my very best to be as concrete as possible with this per your instructions. Here's what I will say. Does every musical instrument contain within itself all the potential sounds it can make or be made to make. It does indeed contain the potentiality to create all possible sound waves that it can make or can be made to make. I believe we can prove this with probability, quantum physics, uh, all of the current science about quantum mechanics states that this is objectively true. It's the slit experiment, the double split experiment, right? As long as there's an observer, it can, it has all these potentialities within itself. And then I wonder, does the invention of the car really imply the car crash? Does every car have within it a potential car crash? 
does a human life contain all the possibilities that that human can enact based on their genetics? Does every seed contain the potential for every type of tree? The problem that I see with this is that people become obsessed with this idea of potentiality. I think that looking at an instrument and seeing and wondering as to whether it has all these potentials for creating sound waves that can be heard by us with our human ears, with the limited spectrum that we can do so. Uh, I would say that part of the question that people should be asking themselves when they wonder about the potentiality of these instruments um, is whether the potentiality is worth anything at all. So that's what I would end on. Tell me what you mean by that last idea, because that's really the that's that's really the payoff here. How does yeah. how does worth work? Worth uh, worth is in the realization of of potential. So to me, something that has potentiality within it but that is never realized is worth less than whatever the realization might actually be. Even if it's just a dissonant chord that's plucked, that's better than no sound at all existing. Okay. Well, would you accept that in philosophical terms that that moves into the general schools that we refer to as pragmatism or utilitarianism? Yes. Is that fair or, or not? That's, that's fair. That's fair. Okay. Okay. Um, this is a strong opinion held loosely. Nice. So, <laughs> that's, yeah. that's what we should all strive for, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like mm -hmm. that idea. Strong opinions held loosely. Uh, well, that's, I think that is a satisfying uh, answer. I think it's a difficult question. Um, it, it's helpful to me in the sense I'm trying to really think about when we, I'm relating it back to the concept of memory and alertness, but I think that you could say this applies to, well, any human life, for instance, where is, if, if we replace the musical instrument with a person's life, do we say really they have all of these potentialities? And going back to the dropping of the atomic bomb, you know, when I was a little first grader, you know, there were still sonic booms and kids were told they could grow up to be president. Everybody was told that, you know, so it was very democratic and very woke then. And of course, it's not true, but it's also stretching it, I think, of, of where we, how we define a life, you know? And I think one way to think of it is those movies, like for instance, It's a Wonderful Life, the Christmas movie with Jimmy Stewart, which is a variation on the Scrooge thing. But in, in the Jimmy Stewart movie, which is uh, Capra, great American tradition, you know, his whole life is pulled out. And the Twilight Zone does this too. So everything that was ever connected with him, and it, it goes, you know, into, you know, you can just imagine that rippling endlessly. And I sort of follow your pragmatic 
or let's just say practical point of view and say, I don't know about that. I don't know if, if we are these endless ripples, you know, so that if even though we're apparently not that important in the great scheme of things, but even within cultural discourse, I don't know if if everything would just change if we were, you know, to suddenly vanish out. Are you, I, I'm not hearing you, David. Sorry. I think that I think that you become more and more valuable the quicker you constrict those potentialities. The sooner you enter into a path and turn yourself, I'm thinking about this question in terms of artists, writers, painters, musicians. Um, the musical instrument aspect is what got me thinking about this. And so many artists of all stripes never do anything because they enjoy existing in that Jimmy Stewart potentiality. That, oh, it's just ripple. I could go anywhere. I could do anything. Yeah. And and something that I've found a lot of value in with even just getting this stable job that's going to pay me on the first of the month every month and that has a routine in which I'm getting into my my soul has felt uh much more vibrant since I've done that since I I'm no longer waking up every day with all these potentials for what oh, what am I going to do today? Well, I could write I could pursue leads to freelancing. I could clean the house. I could take Gus to Target. I could, I could, I could, I could know. Now, when I wake up tomorrow, I know what I'm going to do. And so, again, on the practical, pragmatic, utilitarian front, I'm thinking very much in terms of the most value happens when you enter the tunnel. Well, I think that links back very, very uh, neatly and importantly to earlier topics when we looked at the illusion of variety and, uh, you know, the the idea of drowning in options. And I think it also connects with our earlier themes about lack of initiation rights for young people of kind of never growing up. You know, you, mm -hmm. I, I, I was thinking the other night, there's a tiki bar downtown, which a lot of important things. I think, I don't know, did, did I take you there? I don't know if we, it was kind of a way, Frankie's. You, you but, haven't taken me there, but you you like this tiki bar. You, you've certainly yeah. mentioned it. A lot of different things have happened there. A surprise party, Diane threw a surprise party for me there. A lot of, there have been, both good and bad moments there. But I, for some reason, remember being there with um, a group of, of younger people. There were people who were probably about your age now. And it was mm -hmm. one of the first nights, and there a lot of them were coupled off, and they all knew each other. So I felt like an outsider from several different points of view. But my takeout watching them and listening to them was that life was just slipping away from them. They were really working hard, several of them, to avoid being parents. They didn't want to go down that path. They didn't want to get married. They didn't want to commit to anything. It was really quite tragic. And they were kind of, they weren't in their 20s anymore, but they weren't grownups either. Mm 
And I mm. think this is a topic that we've, you and I have talked about quite a bit on the show from different angles. And I think this relates to it. I think that the notion of keeping all of your options open, potentiality, potentiality as some sort of investment fund that you've got. And I think people look at it as, well, I've got potentiality, you know, well, I could have been a contender, you know, well, Mm -hmm. yeah, no, no, you couldn't. And Mm -hmm. it really becomes quite tragic. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if that many small town bars are filled with those people. I actually tend to think, in my experience, the people in small town bars are kind of aware of the truth and they're not. You know, it's it's the ones in movies and Bruce Springsteen songs that you often get that. But I don't think that's really true to life. But I do think that this this worship of potentiality is enormously misguided and and probably uh, psychopathically delusional if you really just looked at it. Right. 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 Well, I think that living in potentiality is how you get poltergeists. I think that life starts to move things around and open doors and close doors and things get really noisy when you don't commit. One of my, uh, I don't buy into this whole thing about people who say they have no regrets in their life, right? Well, if I had a regret, if I changed anything about my life, then my life would be different. I don't know. I, I'm not. I'm not convinced of that. I do have a major regret early in life, and that is that when I got out of high school, my grandparents really wanted me to go to college, and I didn't. Right. My first major regret is that I didn't simply enter into a trade, go to trade school, and learn something, and become a mm-hmm. plumber or a carpenter or a welder. Welders a good welder will make $250,000 a year. Um, The second thing that happened, the deal that my grandparents made me to to sweeten it up and get me to go to school was for Rios and I, because we were together at the time, 18, to move down to Orlando, Florida, where we would live in their house rent-free and get a job as interns at the Charles Schwab headquarters, where my aunt at the time was head of HR. We took that. We took that. We said, okay, we'll do that. Well, we moved down there and we worked at Charles Schwab. I worked on Roth IRA accounts, making sure that everything, all the I's were dotted and the T's were crossed. Met some cool people who all had a kind of realistic ambition of what they wanted to do. They wanted to move up in the company, make a solid six-figure income and have kids and all this kind of stuff. Well, Rios and I were artsy fartsy type people. And we could not, I was having visions of fight club. I was wearing a tie every day. I, uh, I thought to myself, I want to be a writer. I want to do this. I want to do that. You see where this is all going, obviously, because you know me. Well, we'd also didn't like living under my grandparents' roof because they had a lot of rules and it can get very dicey when you're living in a place rent-free, even if it's offered, eventually that chicken's going to come home to roost and people are going to be upset with you. So we decided, you know what? No, we're not going to do this. We're going to move. We're going to move to El Paso, Texas, and I'll, I'll enroll in UTEP and we will get our own place and we will be independent. I regret that for a lot of 
reasons, a lot of reasons. First of which is that if staying there, I would have been able to spend more time with my grandfather before he died. I would have gotten more time with him. He died very suddenly. Um, secondly, it would have set me up. If I had worked there for 10 years and when I was 28, I was very well liked within the company. Um, I was completely primed to be mobile within that hierarchy. The wheels had been super greased. I was the kid. I was the not the boss's son, but close enough, right? The HR manager's nephew. Sure, why not? 10 years of that, and I could have had a very stable savings account nest egg and everything that I wanted to do, whether it was writing. I mean, I still could have done it. I still could have met you. But when I met you, I could have been wearing a nice pair of shoes and I could have bought you a drink, right? Uh, I don't know why I got off on this tangent. Oh, I now I remember. Um, this whole uh, don't have regrets thing is cope. That's how people who don't realize their potential cope by saying that like, no, you actually did 100% the correct thing and thinking about it practically, pragmatically, utilitarianly. No, I didn't. <laughs> wow. You know, I, I if you've told me about that that period in your life, I really don't think you have, because I think I would have recalled, because it stands out as being more at odds with, you know, anything I know about your character now. So that's a very, very big jump. I think that's really interesting. I think that shows... Uh, well, the changes of the last couple of years, you know, I think it mm -hmm. shows, uh, you know, really settling into a long-term relationship, having a child and this new phase that is upon you about a new career. And I, I, there's just a lot to be said, you know, there that's, uh, that's really, really interesting. But I think you did get to the heart of some of the, of the imaginative challenge, which uh, I do think that was a, a, as satisfying an answer as, as you can probably come up with. And mm -hmm. I, I encourage people to think about those kinds of questions because, of course, there's, there's not a wrong or right answer. But I think that if you did engage with that same question in a different frame of mind, you'd be surprised uh, what different thoughts would come up. Oh, and yeah, I, I like that, that kind of question for that reason. Absolutely. Do you have a tool and a tip for us today? I do. I do. And this is something you can take this tool to your classroom. I'm certainly going to take it to mine. And I encourage listeners to follow this up uh, as best they can in their own lives. You need at least a partner, but it's a fun couples game, too, if you want to step outside school and students and younger people and just uh, have some fun. But it starts with, uh, for instance, or the way I started with, I acquaint my students with, uh, there are two, uh, there are probably more, but there are two really good, strong, possible explanations of the origin of the, the phrase, beating a dead horse, which even today's young people have heard, or at least can understand usually 
But it's fun to get even people thinking about that because it starts, you know, a little bit of awareness of figurative language, idiomatic expressions, cliches, you know, a little bit of a language awareness. Uh, and that there really is some fascinating history in the, in the possibilities. And they begin to see that it's not just individual words that entwine and build ecosystems. It's these crazy phrases and the human you know, capacity to come up with these ideas. Okay, so with that in mind, then I pass around the hat. And I have a whole range of, I don't wear hats usually, I wear caps, but I've got a range of crazy hats and I recommend a crazy hat. And you have on, on slips, similar types of expressions, okay? To beating a dead horse. Idiomatic expressions or cliches, uh, or colorful language, however you want to describe it. This is one of the few times that in a student setting, students are allowed to use their devices. I do not let them use their devices. I make them handwritten notebooks, unless there is some dire medical, psychological reason otherwise. They can look up what is considered to be the official explanation of where the phrase came from. And oftentimes, like beating a dead horse, there might be a couple in the running. But only after they have crafted their own explanation, which they have invented purely from their imagination and reason. And then they have to present to the class. And the person who wins the most votes for their invented explanation wins a really cool prize. So I think that is a great game to play with people. I think it's a fun game for, you know, relatively smart, imaginative, lateral thinking adults, but it works like gangbusters in, in classrooms. And it's a good way to get young people connected with the strangeness of language, the unnecessariness of it, the colorfulness of it, the fun of it, the bizarreness of it. So that's my tool. And here's my really, tip. Really, that's really good pedagogy. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to have to keep track of you. You're, you, you're going to... Uh, you know, it will start, you're, you'll, it, they'll creep in slowly. It's like, uh, well, it's, uh, it's like the, the music man, you know, Robert Preston. It starts, you know, what pool to, a pool hole will do to a small town. You put David into teaching and suddenly he's going to start talking about learning outcomes. Oh, uh, yeah. Expectations, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, you will be happy to hear, though, that I was supposed to go to a mental health awareness seminar that was going to last all day, and I had too much work to do. I didn't want to do it. It was over Zoom, and you were required to have your camera working, so I put a piece of tape over it and pretended like my microphone didn't work, so they excused me from it. Good for you. <laughs> Fight the power. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, cool. here's here's my tip. I have It's sort of two-pronged, but... I wanted to mention the first part of this. I It ties back into our uh, series on photography. And I happened to discover 
just an enormous cache of photographs of the key Australian girlfriend after my divorce, Karen, who I call the brunette. And I realized I'd completely in my mind misrepresented how much we'd done together, how much fun. I mean, there was just, I had to, I had to really revisit my, my whole thing on that. And so my first part of my tip is be able to reevaluate, have, you know, it sometimes might even take some courage to do that, but be willing to reevaluate in, in, in the face of, of new information or rediscovered information. Because now what I end up with is not the fact that there was an absence or a deficit of photography, ceremonial, you know, ceremonializing that, that time together. Far from it. I'm faced with the question of, well, in the face of so much photography, what does that say about what resulted? Is that the right way to think about it? But with all that seriousness in mind, uh, it was still hot today, but I went out for my uh, constitutional, and then I decided I was going to treat myself and go to the classic A&W root beer, and you've told some good stories about that. A&W. I went and had a root beer cream and it was oh, fabulous. It was fabulous. It was fabulous. And that's my that's awesome. Every once in a while, you need a root beer cream. You absolutely do. I love it. And have you been dreaming? I have. And I, this is, I think I've got something to really, uh, to share in a dream study sense. I had a really profound uh, dream sequence that was extremely language focused. And I mean language at the conversational level where someone says something important, uh, a phrase that is seen in writing. So we've got both sides of the written and the, the heard spoken word. And then uh, some magical gibberish that got very confusing. The first part, I mentioned a, a kind of very uncomfortable anxiety dream about uh, a sexual encounter with a, a woman who kind of scared me psychologically. And I, in the dream, I use this as an example of lucid dreaming. You might remember, I, in the dream I escaped mm -hmm. by doing exactly the realistic thing of mm -hmm. picking my clothes up off this love seat, going down the hall, changing in the bathroom. And, you know, I didn't try to wake myself up suddenly or freak out. I really treated that as, as real in every way. Well, that woman was back in a dream and she was very friendly and kind of sweet and charming. And I remembered what it was that appealed so much about her uh, to me. And we were having like morning coffee, tea, scones, you know, some sort of pastry treat outside. And a bird showed up that I just had never seen before, and nor had she. And it was very cheerful and, and not a beautiful tropical bird, but interesting. And I said to her, do you know what kind of bird that is? 
And she said in a really sort of cute, charming, girly sort of way, well, it's a visiting bird. And I thought that was perfect. And I, I had this great sense of, of relief about it. And I thought, you know, this is kind of like reevaluating uh, the photography thing. I had had a really uncomfortable dream about it that. And there were good reasons for that. But here she reemerges in a very sort of cheerful sort of sense. Shortly after that, I was with another woman on the coast of California, and we were on some sort of a mission, kind of like a road movie sort of thing. And on the map and on a sign coming into town in a kind of, you know, David Lynchian sort of Twin Peaks way, there was a sign for Sunken City, California. Mm. And I just thought that was really, really lovely. And then to close off the dream, there was a device, kind of, it looked like, um, well, something you might measure feet for, some sort of precision measuring sort of device made of, of metal and kind of interesting in a sculptural sense. And it had a word, like its name, its brand name. And the people I was with, there was now a couple of other people, we couldn't stay focused on it. We all we realized that we all saw a different name and we struggled to pronounce it correctly. And the closest mm. I can recall was something like uh, Voynich, you know, like the Voynich manuscript, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it was magical occult writing. And I thought that was an interesting way to close out a dream sequence that was really, really language, language driven. That was the essence of it from, you know, this line, well, it's a visiting bird to sunken city, California, then to a magical word that no one could pronounce and we were all seeing differently. So I woke up thinking about that and what were the factors involved in being language focused. And I went back to my dream index and where this has happened in the past and where I've been able to record it, I've come out of the dreams with a very strong sense of clarity for the day of what I'm going to do and what I'm going to achieve. And you know what? By four o'clock the next day, I've started to yield to the fact that I've got none of those things done that that clarity might have been, yeah, it was good, but ain't none of those things accomplished. And somewhere in that paradox, I think there's something going on. I think that language-based dreams reflect some kind of internal struggle uh, to break out of an anxiety frame through logic and reason and rational achievement. And the potentiality can sometimes delude you into thinking something has actually been done.